How's it going, everybody? Thank you so much for checking this podcast out. If it's the first time you're listening, make sure you subscribe on whatever platform it is that you listen on and also rate it, review it. Let me know what you think. Follow along on social media at Real Curious Jones. And you can also watch video clips on YouTube. Make sure you go to YouTube, check out the Curious Jones YouTube page and uh, make sure you subscribe there as well. Subscribing to all this stuff is the best way you can help grow the platform. It's how all these algorithms work and we want more people to see it. So I appreciate it a ton. My guest today is a retired combat decorated Navy SEAL who also served as an instructor at Hell Week, pushing guys through that process. And after retiring from the military, he got engaged in consulting in the business world. And he's authored several books, uh, a couple business books, talking about the principles of the Navy SEALs and how those translate into the business world. And he's also written two different types of novels, one that is sci-fi specific, and that one's called The Time Warrior Sagas, and the other called The Brotherhood, which is more uh, about a story, a fictional story about a soldier who had left the SEALs with PTSD, and it follows his journey through a multi-book series. Really awesome guy, answered a ton of questions about both the SEAL program, the training, um, talked about leadership a lot, both in business as well as just our government and how our politicians are leading us currently. Really, really cool. And I loved having a conversation with him. I've wanted to talk with the SEAL for a really long time. So really appreciate him helping to make that happen. His new book is called Be Nimble. His name is Marty Strong. Give it up and enjoy the episode. Well, let's endeavor to be cool. That's a <laughs> yeah. good, that's a good, that's a good target. So I think maybe first and foremost to set the table of all things, your background is pretty cool. Uh, I think maybe out of all of these special forces, and I've had a couple of other folks on Tim Kennedy from the you know Green Beret side. Yeah. Um, I even had an, a Navy gentleman, uh, Josh Dunce, who was an EOD specialist, and kind of talked to me about how that actually was a form of special operations specific yep. to the Navy as it, you know, isn't in other branches, but um, Navy SEALs seem to have that allure that nobody else seems to have. And I was just like, man, if he can come on here and, and just share, I think some of the questions that might come up would be really cool. But how did you find yourself in a career like that? Because like I said, I've always considered like, man, would I've done a good job. Could I have done it? But it's a big far stretch from actually enlisting into the military and then finding yourselves in a very difficult program. Yeah, I can, there's a complete accident. I stumbled into it. I joined the Navy at 17 to get away from Nebraska and a divorced family situation. I just wanted to escape. Did real well in high school. I, I could have uh, gone to college. My parents didn't want to spend any money on me. So I said, all right, I went into the recruiter with two other guys who joined the Marine Corps. I chickened out, they joined the Marine Corps. I, went, I eventually went down to the Navy recruiter and I joined the Navy because my dad was in the Navy. And went after boot camp, went to a radar air traffic control school, 17 weeks of that, was supposed to go to the Mediterranean to a ship to do that job. And instead I got orders to uh, 
to SEAL training in Coronado, effective like the next day, report the next day with, well, here's the tickets, go. So <clears throat> it took me, it took me actually almost eight years to figure out exactly what had happened. Eight years later, I went back as, as one of the lead instructors of the first phase of training, kind of the crucible selection process as hell we can everything. And I was able to go in and look at my archive records and I could actually see what happened. But apparently I took a swimming test and the test was more for, for comp competition that was going on in boot camp at the time. But uh, they got my social security number and I ended up in the system going to see so that's, that's a real thing then. There's like an active selection process where someone or a group of someone's are looking at intangibles that might not be obvious to some people, but you're, in your case, it was your ability to perform in the water. So there's a mentor program now. They didn't have it back when I went through about 20 ish ex Navy SEALs scattered around the United States. They do both the physical testing and prepping and, and coaching of, of candidates that want to go into the Navy, become a SEAL. It, but they do a little bit of that psychological review to make sure, is this really what you want to do? Then there's the uh, recruiting process. You end up going into a special boot camp now with, with just SEAL candidates. And so you're training and you're exercising. There's more of this kind of psychology discussion and you know what you're getting into, that kind of thing. Then there's a, a course after that. There's a prep course with exercise physiologists and all these other people. This is all because they needed SEALs and they were trying to get a higher graduation rate because traditionally the graduation rate was 25% of the class. So you'd start with 120 and only 25% would graduate. Mine, uh, 13 originals graduated out of 126 that started six wow. months earlier. Which class were you? I was in 93. Class 93. Yeah. So, uh, and, and in those days they didn't need SEALs and we weren't at war and they only had a, three classes a year, I think. And this has fluctuated over, over, over time when, when Reagan became president, he wanted to amp up the number of SEALs. So they went to like five classes a year and then that kind of slowed down. And then when 9-11 um, happened, they, they went back into ramp up mode again. It's just hard to find the candidates because about 500-ish people are screened to create a class of about 100 to 130 students. So you're already down selected when you show up on day one. Hmm. And there's psychological screening, there's IQ screening, there's most, you know, the physical stuff like eyesight and some of that stuff, they have to take a physical test, PT test. And they're trying everything in their power these days to make sure that when you show up there on day one, you've got a really high probability of, of being able to succeed as much as the Navy can affect that probability. The problem is, and I didn't really understand this until I went back as an instructor and watched it for two years, everything is really happening between your ears. It's really all psychology and not physiology. And it's whether or not you win that, that argument in your head about whether you should or shouldn't take another step forward. And the ones that take over that discussion and actually drive that narrative succeed and end up graduating. And the ones that succumb to that conversation and, and agree with that inner voice that this isn't for them or yeah, you know, they could be a SEAL, but they have, they have other things to do, whatever that whatever that calculus is that gives them the, the out to decide to do something other than being a SEAL, that's 75% of the people. So you still end up, you know, since 1962, even with all those things that I noted, special boot camps, mentor programs, special physiology training, but we're still at 75% attrition. That's crazy. The difference with the SEAL training and a lot of other selection courses for other elite forces, US and, and around the world, 
is we're not trying to break somebody down and build them back up. We're trying to find the resilient, self-starter, self-motivated, hard-driving, focused person that's already there. So you, if you don't have that when you show up, you're not going to get it during. There's not the training is the training is to teach you how to do things, especially in the first phase, first nine weeks. They're teaching you how to swim so that you don't drown. They're teaching you how to uh, roll rubber boats so we can make you roll rubber for hours and hours and hours and hours and carry it in your head and things. It's all to get you to a point where you can physically exhaust yourself through a bunch of mindless drills and exercises. And we lose usually half the class before Hell Week. So if you think about it, you had 500 before the class starts. Now you're down to 120, 130. And in the first four or five weeks, you're down to 60. And then you go into Hell Week and you usually cut the class in half in Hell Week. So, you know, there's, there's a constant willowing or winnowing out of these, of these people. And those that are, that are mentally resilient and not tough in like the movie kind of tough, not, you know, they're sitting there gritting their teeth and making animal noises. I'm talking about, they just, they suck it up and they, they, they are controlling that voice in their head. I'm going to put one foot in front of the other, you know, they can kill me, but they can't eat me, whatever, whatever gets you through the next evolution, the next day. And eventually, whether it's leading up to hell week or even in hell week, you look up and you realize there's a hell of a lot less people there. And you start to feel like you're achieving something, like you're different. In the beginning, you think you're the weak. I was 125 pounds. You know, I was like almost 18, 18 years old. And I look like I was 11 years old. I mean, I'm, I've always looked a lot younger than my age. So uh, I, was, I was the last and least likely person you think might do it. But as an instructor, having put so many people through, you know, you look at these, these studs that would come out of, you know, collegiate sports and we had... Uh, Hawaiian iron triathlon guys that were like in the top five, well, they got to make it right. Cause they're swimming and look at the endurance and, and they'd quit, you know? Okay. So it has nothing to do with what you look at. It's kind of like picking fighters in a fight. You know, Oh, the guy with the muscles and the eight pack abs, he's yeah. going to win. You know, it's a very shallow way of looking at a profile for success. And then you find out after a while, you look at their eyes. I was just going to ask you, could you tell after yeah. all those years when you first saw them with a pretty high certainty, this guy's going to make it or this guy's not going to make it. Yeah, absolutely. All the instructors could. And when we went through as students and most of us couldn't remember most of going through as students, we didn't have the maturity or the life wisdom to understand. Even if we, even if the guy next to us had, you know, that look in his face, we didn't know what that meant, but you come back as an instructor. And usually by about the end of the second week, you start to see immediately the first group of people that are having that conversation in their head, their eyes change a little bit. They little, look a little bit more squeamish, a little bit more reluctant and hesitant. They may be moving physically with everybody else, but you can just tell. And they also can tell the people that seem very resolved and resolute. And they're just kind of taking it blow by blow and not really making a big deal of it. They're not emotionally reacting to every mm -hmm. consequence or every failure or every you know um, difficult task that's put in front of them which is exactly what you're looking for in special operations. You're looking for somebody who realizes that the job is about putting a team of people in harm's way in extraordinarily crazy situations that, that exist, don't exist for conventional forces. That's why they have special forces. So special operations, individuals and teams know that when they get called to do something, they're going to go in and something weird's going to happen. They're going to be put on the wrong side of the mountain. They're going to be, they're, you know, the swamp is going to have an 18 foot tidal change and suddenly they're up to their neck in mud and water and they're supposed to be, you know, walking. 
All that stuff happens, but you're prepared for that. It's one hell of a, a world to live in. And a, one, I'm very thankful that there are people who can get through that, you know, because there's an obvious need uh, far unpublicized. And, you know, I don't think people quite understand the importance of it, but I'm so thankful for it. Has it been difficult and have you seen a difference as time has gone on or has the SEAL program been able to stay isolated away from the softening of America? Whether you view that as a good or a bad thing, I think there's a reality to war and there's a reality to special operators who have to be on the front lines of that to keep everybody safe that might not translate as smoothly into you know, typical society. And I actually wanted to ask you about that later on, you know, as it pertained to the business world, but has the SEAL program been able to stay isolated from that woke ideology? I, I get what you're saying. I understand it. Obviously, the way I described the process and, and the selection uh, philosophy, it's not about how, how, how you feel today or whether I hurt your feelings. It's the exact opposite of that, right? It's trying to get to a whole different kind of human function of the brain. And so it's not about, it's the exact opposite of woe is me, or I'm a victim, or I'm a class of victims. Or, so the answer is nothing's changed. And I would guess nothing's changed in any of the special ops uh, selection processes in the United States. Because you have to go, when you come in there, you're a volunteer and you come in there and you have to go through the program. The program isn't modified and, and, and uh, restructured. There's actually a book that is by, by water beneath the waves. It just came out about a year ago, which is about the history of maritime special operations. And it actually starts with, you know, the Marines and the army and all the failures of those units. And they were started and they were shut down and they were abused. And eventually you kind of get to the UDT uh, frogmen in the Pacific and the combat demolition guys that went into Omaha beach in the Atlantic. And then all the operations in Africa and Sicily and Italy. And then it, it ends at the end of the Vietnam engagement. So you see this whole evolution. And in there, it basically talks about how what SEALs go through today is a direct, I mean, it's a direct descendant, direct line to the very first training they set up in Florida at Fort Pierce for the people getting ready to go into combat against Nazi Germany. There are, there are things like Hell Week, there are things that are actually were picked out and they were created by combat veterans that came back from some of the early battles in World War II to make sure that all those combat lessons learned, like, you know, everything's going to change. You know, the first, first con, you know, first uh, casually upon contact with the enemy is, is the plan, that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. or Mike Tyson's thing. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. These are, these are the same realities of combat. So they came back and they, they poured that knowledge and direct experience into the way the selection happened and the way the training was going on at the basic screening level and then in the advanced level and then later on in, in unit combat unit training. That's still there. I didn't even realize it went back that far until I read the book that the things that I saw, the things that I was in charge of when I was um, in charge of the first phase as a senior enlisted guy. And then later when I came back as an officer, I was in charge of the third phase of BUDS. Those things are direct, direct lineage to all the lessons learned and all the wars, you know, since World War II, Korea, Vietnam, everything since, you know, obviously Iraq, Afghanistan. And those lessons are hard lessons. They're the exact opposite of, you know, a um, more of a touchy-feely approach to life, mm. which may be fine for people that have, you know, if you're an artist, you don't need to worry about, you know, 
being in cold mud or something like that. That, That's not your function. That's not what you want to do in life. Go do what you want to do in life. But yeah, they've, uh, they've done a good job of continuing the tradition of trying to make sure that if anything does change in the course, it is directly related to an actual combat lesson learned and it has rel- relative value, not just now or not just when that event happened, but also it would carry forward into future wars. Sure. I had an old MMA coach <clears throat> he used to talk about this guy, Dick Marcenko, I think was the, the last name. Oh, yeah, I, I know him real well. Okay. And I mean, he just, he would give these stories that make me just think, man, like reminded me of my grandfather. It was just like, spare me the labor pains, show me the baby kind of mentality, you know? Um, but I was thinking, and this was five, 10 years ago, God, you could never get away with like saying something like that or being so direct and blunt. Um, but you know, when your life's on the line, that's the only way that you can say something effectively. Right. But, you know, I, I was kind of looking through and, and analyzing a lot of the principles that you preach. And I'm like, man, there are a lot of principles from that Navy SEAL mindset that translate over here. But God, there's got to be a bunch that don't. So it just well, so communication style, you, you know, when you were mentioning um, Dick Marcinko. So Dick Marcinko was a pretty amazing guy. And I'll give you I'll give you a real quick quote to explain why maybe what you heard about him was a very kind of single faceted story. Somebody told me once, and it was a great description of, of Marcinko. Dick Marcinko was the kind of guy that could walk into a room full of admirals, speak the King's English and convince them all that he was God's gift to whatever their problem was, or he could walk into a biker bar and in 20 minutes that I'll be buying him beers. He had the ability and the intellect and the intelligence, native intelligence to know how to communicate to the people he was with and know what to say to motivate the people he was with. And, and it was, it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, trait and he was able to shift back and forth. I mean, so I think that's why he was so successful in the teams and, and he was a combat veteran, obviously Vietnam, et cetera. So, so communication styles uh, would not convey in that, for example, if you're in, in combat and you're yelling at people, I mean, that, you, would not, you would not do that in a crisis in your company. You wouldn't be running around grabbing people by the shoulder and shoving them, you go this way, you go this way, you guys take left, you, know, you guys get downstairs and secure the elevator. You wouldn't be doing that. But there's a place for that in combat. And the people that are involved in that don't see that as being yelled at. They're happy that the leaders are taking charge of the situation and giving direction and all that. So the 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 thing that you do want to retain about communications is kind of like the homage to Marcinko. You want to make sure that you're conveying and communicating and influencing. And if part of that influence is to ignite action, to uh, motivate, to enlighten, whatever your goal is, that you're actually achieving that. And SEALs are, have high IQs. And once they get through the basic training and some of the intermediate training, uh, they start to all think that they're Napoleon. And I mean, I was an enlisted and I was an officer for 10 years. So, you know, trying to corral a whole bunch of Napoleons that also think there might be Einstein and a few other things you can toss in there. They're always questioning everything that you're coming up with. They're questioning the orders, they're questioning the plan, they're questioning the source of the intel. And they do that up until the point where you have to basically say, pencils down, here's the deal, this is what we're going to do. And if we have time, we're going to go out and rehearse it and we'll fix it if it falls through in the rehearsal. But if we don't have time for the rehearsal, this is the plan. This is what we're going to do. And they roger up because they know 
as professionals, there's always so much time to incubate, you know, this brainstorming melding of everybody's opinions. And at some point you have to fish or cut bait and, and make a decision. They also appreciate that in a leader that you make a decision. They also appreciate a leader that listens to that whole kind of crucible of ideas and everything prior to executing. Cause they are collectively far more experienced and far more capable as seal operators than the officers are. The officers just, you can never have enough time hmm. to replicate a room of 20 experts that are also expert in like five different categories of special operations. So you become humble as a leader that conveys you become creative and, and curious and listening to people's input, allowing the input that conveys, you know the sense of, a, uh, the sense of uh, responsibility and your accountability as a leader. Obviously in the SEALs, it's life and death consequences. In business, it may not be as dire, but you still, anybody that's been in leadership in the military, when they step out, they know the buck stops with them if they've been put in charge. You know, they do not push it on somebody else. They don't point to other people and say, it's that person's fault. So that's maybe not uniquely a military trait, but it tends to be consistent as a military trait. Yeah. Accountability always has been one for me. I've heard you know, Jocko Wilnick talk about accountability often as somebody I'm a big fan of where, how big of a part, because I, I even think about the world, our country as it stands right now, regardless of your political affiliation and what you think, the level of accountability that I feel is lacking with all of our leaders is astounding. And it must be frustrating as someone who's kind of come from a world of accountability or what seems like high accountability in the military because the consequences are so dire and everybody has to be on their game to then, you know, see whether it's in our political landscape or in the business landscape where accountability isn't something that's valued as much. I have a point and be nimble where I talk about, um, actually, I think it's a, a name of a chapter. It says crowdsource insights don't crowdsource decisions. Mm -hmm. So there was a, a move probably about 10 years ago in business schools and, and in general in, in universities, but in business schools for sure, this idea that you have to socialize and get buy-in. So it's an interesting segue because where they pulled that from was the artistic and design world where you try to get everybody that knows how to, you know, design the wing of a, of a plane or the fender of a car in a room and you, you collaborate, you try to come up with something that makes sense. Now, in that scenario, you may or may not have anybody in that room that's actually accountable for whether the car sells or not. You know, what you're trying to get out of that, you're trying to pull, elicit, and draw out some creative, something new, something, you know, good, great, that, that's going to catch people's eyes, that's going to make the final product uh, better, different, or, or, you know, spectacular. So you take that concept and you, and you go to a business. And, and one of the people I talked to one time said, we should, we should pull everybody in the room and talk about strategy. And I said, who do you want to pull in the room? Because in that company, which was a smaller company, the people in the room were accountants, uh, payroll people, benefits people, uh, there's a logistics person that did shipping of, of boxes. I said, we'll get all of them in a room. And that's, that's crowdsourcing, get, get buy-in and everybody. And then we'll, as a, as a compromise, we'll come up with some kind of melded idea of the strategy of the company. And he looked at me and he goes, oh, that probably wouldn't work. And I said, right. You know, another example would be, you know, you've got a patient ready for surgery. 
And the doctor says, wait a minute, I want to get the guy that's cleaning the, the, uh, the dishes down in the, in the hospital lunchroom. I want to get the, the woman that's checking people in down at patient, patient administration. I want to get, you know, a patient walking by. I want to get all these people in here and, and I want them to, I want to get their in, input and insight on how we should, what's the next thing I should do with my scalpel. Now, if you do that with a room full of brain surgeons, that's different. That's more like, that's more true to the original source, you know, the creative brainstorming kind of origin of this thing. So I'm a big believer in crowdsourcing insights. Listen to everybody you can. Obviously, I learned that in the teams. Um, seek people that you don't have at your fingertips, because usually you have people around you that either know what you're thinking, know what you like to think, and they start telling you, you know, what they to. think aligned with what you think. So you have to seek out other people, neighbors, you know, whether you're watching TV, webinars, documentaries, reading books, you have to really expand and spread out and pull in all that, crowdsource all those insights, crowdsource ideas, absorb all that. But at some point, you have to make a decision. And that's why I say you can't crowdsource decisions. I love that. It's so, I literally just had a conversation with someone and they asked me a, a pretty blunt question. They said, do all opinions matter? I was like, man, like my gut instantly was like, no. I mean, that's kind of, I'm just maybe a little, uh, it's like, yes, yeah, I, I don't care. I, this isn't important. To your point, there's some things just you need to, you need to take action on. But I, I took a second and I thought about it and I was like, but if somebody has an opinion that's really not relevant or it's completely out of line with what the consensus is here, it doesn't matter but it does in the sense that I want to know why they have that opinion. Possibly it's a data point that maybe secondarily is important. And so I kind of struggled with how I was answering that question. And I think what he was looking for was in the heat of the moment, does every opinion matter, which obviously is no, but you know, is that a different way of saying kind of what you just said is, you know, kind of analyzing or crowdsourcing some of that and maybe sticking yeah. it into a file for, for later analysis. So you've said a couple things. One, I, I would think all opinions matter, but no, all, not all opinions are going to be acted upon. And the, the idea that there's one person that has an odd opinion from the consensus, the outlier could be the actual answer. So when you're seeking excellence in execution, whatever it is, it's very, very rarely a consensus or a compromise decision by a committee. It just isn't. Uh, if you look at some of the you know, great scientists in history, you look at uh, the great entrepreneurs, you know, like Elon Musk and Steve Jobs, and and even um, uh, I was going to say I just forgot his name, but um, the they're all they're all kind of perceived socially as mean and tough, and they're not listening to people. But if you if you're Steve Jobs and you walk into a room and you say, I want you to take your your talent engineers, and I want you to make a phone that has the power of a computer. And I want you to make it the size of this carton of cigarettes or this pack of cigarettes. And then everybody in the room says, can't be done, won't be done. I'm not gonna be able to do it. You can't do it. This is a stupid idea. All right, well, there's consensus, <laughs> right? And then if you said, well, what, what's the smallest, he didn't say this, but he said, what's the smallest phone you could build that had these capabilities? They'd come back with something that looked like a 50 caliber ammo can, you know? Yeah. They, 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 didn't, they didn't see where he was, going <clears throat> and for him to say all right well since you guys say it can't be done we're not gonna do that let's talk about the next topic no he was a leader he felt himself accountable for apple uh elon musk was the same way 
Tesla was the same. Tesla, the scientist, was the same way. Edison was the same way. When you really look at their bios and read the books, they were very forceful people, and they did seek and seek a lot of outside um, expertise and a lot of input, and they experimented and failed a lot. But they made a decision eventually, and and then they started having breakthroughs and excellence and things that that were different, completely new. Because if you think about it, most people are going to give you the safe answer, mm. which means it's something they're comfortable with, something they're aware of. They're not going to give you the crazy idea, you know, hey, let's teleport sandwiches instead of, you know, we'll get rid of Uber, Uber Eats, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's yeah. going to say something like that. Yeah. So I'm an adherent of a, a concept called intellectual humility, and I didn't coin that phrase. And intellectual humility is essentially stepping in to a room, stepping into a situation. It doesn't always have to be a challenge or a disaster or a crisis. You can do this every day. And what you do is you basically cleanse yourself of all your victories and all your defeats. You open your mind, you stop thinking about the solutions, the football play you've been using for the last six months. You stop relying on your education from nine years ago. What you basically do is you just shut up, open your eyes, open your ears and listen. The second step in that intellectual curiosity is then you start to seek, like we've been talking about, seek all these different sources of outlier, you know, um, asymmetrical input, things that you wouldn't normally think of. I mean, a lot of the code breakers and things like that in World War II, they're bringing in musicians, they're bringing people that were, they had nothing to do with the military or the military, you know, code breaking, but they had an insight because they understood musical tones and everything. And that had a lot to do with being able to break codes. So that's just an example, but that curiosity then sets you up for the third step. The third step is intellectual creativity. I don't think you can be truly creative if you're not curious and open-minded. I don't think you can be curious and open-minded unless you have the humility to drop all the baggage, drop all the, the, um, you know, the, the football play, the way you've always done it, the formula for success, et cetera. You may, you may end up where you were before, but you need to have that first open, open-minded approach. I'm sure people are so sick of me saying this, but what you just laid out is the formula to jujitsu and I'm big into jujitsu. And for me, it's translated that way. It's, you know, it gives you failure daily. And so the humility is huge. Every single day you get knocked from your pedestal. The moment you choke someone out, you get choked out. Um, and there's so many levels, you know, you become a blue belt, then all of a sudden the purple belts start coming after you and they humble you very quickly. There's also a level of creativity and curiosity that comes from it because there's so many possibilities and movements. And I, it, you know, I've heard it called mental gymnastics or, you know, high stakes problem solving with dire consequences. And you're going full bore, right? As opposed to sparring and all these other combat sports where you, you know, you don't want to be throwing punches and hitting people if you're just practicing. You know, when you're doing jujitsu, you're, you're going all out. So you're kind of seeing these decision-making processes play out in real time. And maybe you get caught in a situation that you're really uncomfortable with. And now you've got to think through it when you're, you know, in danger of being choked unconscious. But it all kind of comes back to that creative intelligence that once you've explored all the possibilities and you've learned them and you've drilled them, then your mind starts to take over. And that ability to have an open mind and to be creative is what propels you forward. And it keeps you going back for more and looking for new ways to do the same thing. And so I'm such a huge proponent of it as just a, a teacher of life. And, you know, I was into all kinds of athletics and unfortunately I don't run like I used to and all this other stuff, but to get on a mat and to get physical. And I, th I think just 
most people, the hardest thing they've ever done is the hardest thing they've ever done. Everybody. I mean, and yeah. so you see people that, you know, I feel it for them because I guess the fact that, you know, the, something didn't work out for them today is the end of the world. I guess it is to them, but it just shows that lack of perspective, the lack of having to engage in that. So I, I challenge anyone, regardless if you want to be a, you know, some superstar, just go and challenge yourself with jujitsu. It's a great exercise and it, it'll put you through the rigors, both physically and, and mentally. But I had to bring that up as you laid that out. Cause I'm like, man, that is exactly the course of that. Yeah. I, so I'm a Muay Thai guy. Oh, yeah. I, I did all the, you know, karate and taekwondo and judo and all that stuff when I was younger. And then when I was about 51, I went into a Muay Thai program for three and a half years just to challenge myself. And so I didn't do jujitsu, but I have a bunch of friends. Well, my best friend lives four blocks from here is, is been running around the country with Henry Gracie and he, he had his own Gracie jujitsu studio for wow. years. And so I had a one-on-one -on -one consult with an attorney yesterday and he's, he's a black belt in jujitsu and been doing it for a long time. And we were talking about some of the things he was, he was, struggling with or he was, he was trying to do and i said you know i know i'm not a jiu-jitsu guy but i do i do know enough about rolling you know that what you don't want to do and this is what all new people do in, in jiu-jitsu is you don't want to try to force it you're not trying to arm or leg or body wrestle the solution into into being you kind of go with the flow and the more it's an intelligent flow right the more you know the more the flow informs you on what the next thing to do is. It just kind of, it shows up. It's not like a battle plan. You don't get in there, you know, and say, I'm going to, I'm going to do a three, a three punch combination, then a kick. It's, it's a, it's a different thing. And I said, so maybe what you need to do is apply that jujitsu mindset to this thing that you're having difficulty with, because you're getting frustrated and you're trying to force some things. Why not go with the flow a little bit? He looked at me, he goes, man, I immediately get what you're saying. That's exactly what I need to do. I am doing that. And, and so, you know, even if you've been on the mat and you're, you're in jujitsu, sometimes you forget the lesson. Well, you know, how do you, how do you translate that? Because as you're saying it, it's, you're so right, <clears throat> but I will to play devil's advocate when you're in jujitsu, you sometimes you're forced to have to look at it a different way because you're upside down and someone's squeezing you when you're in business maybe you don't necessarily feel that threat of needing to look at something differently. Think, How about, do you... think about implementing business changes. Think about scaling and the changes around that. Think about you have a failed process that's been identified and you're frustrated. You want to get it in place now. It's like jamming and trying to shove things in and, okay. and you're not really thinking about what's the natural progression of this, this transition from a bad process to a good process. You know, what are the people going through? If the people have to learn a new process, if there's a new system, new technology, et cetera, involved, that's not going to be a, you know, you don't snap your fingers and it happens. So the force play, the frustration the leaders get into in business and whether, and sometimes it's a pitch in something to somebody above them that, that own all the resources, right? They want it on their time. They want it done now. And sometimes there's a flow to it. There's a, a natural rhythm to convincing and influencing enough people to hand you a million dollars or $2 million or part of the company to go do something. So sometimes the more aggressive you are, it may get you so far, but then it, then it becomes an impediment because all you know how to do is to push and shove as a businessman. Yeah. So yeah, that I, I, I don't, I don't regularly use jujitsu 
as a metaphor in what I talk about, but I knew he was a jujitsu guy and the way he was describing it, I go, well, all I got to do is just tell him if he had a new student and, and the student was all tight, you know, and trying to, uh, you know, gur his way through everything. He'd say, okay, that's not the way to do it. Relax. Yeah. Chill, rest, get into a position and breathe. <laughs> Look around and smile a little bit, you know? I mean, it, it's hard for people to see that when they start because they want to, they think it's a fight. They want to will it into existence. Yeah. And in fights, you win. You win now. You, you know, if I'm not, if I'm not winning, I'm losing. So I better do something, right? Do you find that when you get called in, you get called in to consult with a lot of businesses, executive teams to help teach a lot of these principles? Do you find that you get engaged through the executive leadership team thinking you're going to come in and create this aha moment for their their team and that you actually walk out the doors and the aha moment is more so with the leadership team as it is with the group of people who are working for them? Yeah, that that's a good that's a good uh, question because there's a little bit there's a little bit of aha slash good feelings that that fades quickly if it's shallow if you don't actually structurally change the behavior the mindset and the habits of people that are in charge you really haven't done anything constructively what you've done is you've excited them you may have fired them up you may have you know given them a lot of stories and a lot of comparisons and you've shown them what it could look like. And then you walk away and they're standing there. They still don't know how to, how to change the oil in the car. It's so there, my approach is more mechanical when it comes to leaders. And I do believe that, and I've, I've had a lot of experience with this. You take a really good solid leader that's competent and you put them in charge at the top of the pyramid and you walk away. You come back six months later, You've got a, a functioning organization. You've got subordinate leaders that are learning how to lead if they hadn't, hadn't already known how to lead. That kind of a leader at the top makes it all happen. It, it's, they roll up their sleeves. They're accountable to, to making the system and the team and everybody work in concert, achieve the objectives, et cetera. If you put somebody who's dysfunctional at the top, you got the same result in the, in the opposite direction. If you put somebody up there that just hasn't had a lot of training or exposure to how to be a good leader, well, the, those are the people that, you know, that you can go in and influence and assist and help. But if you start at the top, it's kind of like a virus. You, you get the top person to understand what the leadership culture and the leadership behavior should look like and feel like and what the end goals are. And then you tell them, you got to tell everybody, you got to pass this on to the next level and they've got to pass it on to the next level. You basically should have everybody in your company down to the, the person that's driving the, you know, the delivery truck feel like they've got some small piece and ownership and accountability on the way the company's performing. And you can do it, but it, you know, it's not going to come from the truck driver up to the CEO. It's got to come from the top down. I had worked for a gentleman directly for a CEO who, when I came on board, one of the things that he was all about was the Navy SEAL mentality. I know, you know, it was part of our uh, onboarding process to watch a, uh, the video from Admiral McRaven talking about mm -hmm. making your bed in the morning, right? All the principles that he put in front of us, that he preached, that he wanted us to exude, Individually, I'm like, yes, yes, like so on point. This is awesome. But what I realized was this was so in your face from the front, but then glaringly, he was the only person that didn't seem to want to follow any of those principles. And it just came back to this question that I had. It's like, you can, you can lay it all out there. You can tell people this is how it has to happen. You can try to lead that 
way and put, and some people will probably absorb it, get benefit, create value from it. But it all seems to me to fall apart if that one person doesn't truly believe in it and actually do the small things. Like you can sit there and tell other people, you got to make your bed in the morning, but are you going to truly live that example yourself in all the small things that you do? Are you going to be prepared in everything? Because the moment that you're, you're preaching a, a hard message, you're asking other people to be accountable, to have discipline. That's not, that's not always easy for people. But do you see that a lot where you get people that really want to like, Hey, everybody else needs to do it. I believe in it, but yeah, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. So it kind of goes back to what I was saying about the shallow kind of rah, rah, rah approach to, to uh, bringing in somebody to, you know, consult or give a speech or something. There's two things. One, that doesn't work because there's no, there's no stickiness. It doesn't, it doesn't resolve any of the internal behaviors. It doesn't teach anybody a new behavior. Does it, it doesn't inspire and give somebody an aspirational target profile of behavior so they can start working on it. That's the first thing. So if it's just a touch and a go, whether you're a consultant, a speaker, whatever like that, that's not sufficient to really make a difference, to make a dent. The second thing is you can't rent a culture. So, so Bill McRaven, you know, he, he puts all these aspirational goals for behavior in a speech, and then he puts it in a book. He was in the class uh, right after mine, by the way. Um, and, and then people look at it and say, okay, so you read Bill McRaven's book, all the management read Bill McRaven's book. You are now just like Bill McRaven. I expect you to act just like Bill McRaven. You are now SEAL admirals. That doesn't work either. That's like renting a culture. It, it, there's nothing easy about it. There's nothing easy. And I've, I've, I've tried this in lots of different venues and lots of different ways. I mean, I've been at lots of different levels before I was a CEO. As a CEO, back to accountability, you ultimately are responsible for the culture because you actually have the power and authority to maybe make the culture a certain way. But if you're down at a lower level as a vice president or you're running a department or division and you run into what you said, you have to make a choice. Am I going to just adapt and change my behavior and be a great leader for my scope and span of responsibility to people that I'm responsible you know, for? Or am I going to say, you know, if the people at the top aren't going to help me, I'm not going to really put a lot into this. And it all has to do with the size of the organization. If it's a small organization, it's like, you know, when somebody, when somebody um, sneezes in a tent, a pup tent, everybody, you know, gets sick. Small organizations don't have enough layers for you to independently become the leader of your choice in a division or a department away from the flagpole. Big organizations do. But in both cases, I think you can't, you can't rent the culture. You can't bring it in from someplace outside and say, everybody read this, watch this movie, whatever, now become one. That's, that's also a shallow attempt. And the, sec the first one I brought up was you can't have a speech. You can't have a consultant come in for a week or two days and suddenly you think something's going to change. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a habit. It's behavior. It has to be practiced, has to be reinforced, and it has to start at the top. So I've worked at small startups. I've worked at large corporations like IBM, you know, where bureaucracy is, is through and through, <clears throat> a lot of layers, a lot of politics, which kind of leads me, you know, when you think about the biggest company, so to speak, I mean, you could look at our country and just say, you know, America in in a certain way is a business a lot different in a lot of other ways, but a lot of variables, it's, it's more similar to a large business with personalities and a lot of nuance and, you know, 
you got to make a lot of people happy. Is it possible because there's been criticism on both sides, you know, Donald Trump's a horrible leader. Joe Biden's a horrible leader. So, okay. If we agree that there's been bad leadership, regardless, is good leadership something that can fix this problem that we're facing here? And a lot of things are out of our control, obviously, but I think that's with anything, whether you're in the battlefield or in the boardroom, if some things are just out of your control. But since this conversation has really hinged a lot on leadership, is it is this a leadership problem and will leadership help it? Or is this much bigger nuanced conversation that leadership in and of itself doesn't fix? Because I think everybody's looking for who's that person that can come in and, sure. and really galvanize everything back to a place that we need to. Are you familiar with the broken windows concept of law enforcement and policing? Um, so my understanding of it is if you have a neighborhood that has a lot of broken windows in it, it's going to continue to go that way. And if you start to fix the broken windows, then people will kind of subconsciously stop breaking windows because they see that there's a positive momentum yeah. in that neighborhood. Yeah. And they take ownership of their neighborhoods and they start taking offense at somebody breaking a window and suddenly their heads back on straight. Right. So think of that, but use it in a leadership's, um, leadership uh, frame of mind. I think that everybody in the United States, every probably from 16 years old and older, <clears throat> regardless of your, your position, your power, your title, whether you were a politician, not a politician, I think everybody in the United States has to kind of take that approach to the United States. You see something that's wrong, you see something that's not right, it's not moral or ethical. It's not the right way to do something. You correct it. So if somebody spray paints something up on the wall, you, you volunteer, you, you talk to the owner of the building, whatever, and you help clean it up and, and correct it. It's a, it's a broken windows approach, which is a bottom up leadership, which starts to change the point of view, just like in a neighborhood, one neighborhood at a time in the law enforcement example. And then it's suddenly it's, it's, it's not cool to be the destructive force in society it's cool to be the reconstructive force in society and more and more and more people will start to value what they have and they won't just turn a blind eye to people devaluing what people have and that, that what they have could be their privacy it could be their home it could be their education it could be whatever when you change that mindset that'll also change the way people look at their representatives it'll change the the calculus on why they're voting for somebody it'll change who's actually running for office so that all, ha and it's happening in a lot of places in the United States, and it has to happen from the bottom up because any one person at the top in this country, because it's so complicated, we had a lot of presidents have been probably pretty good leaders and they came in with a lot of ideas. And then, you know, somebody, start, somebody yeah. started a global war, you know, four, four months later or something. And suddenly, instead of the great ideas, they're a wartime president and they're doing something completely different for their four years in office, whatever. So they can get derailed pretty easy because they have so many different responsibilities. But anybody that is in, in the Oval Office and anybody that's in national uh, prominence as a politician and state governors, et cetera, they have that bully pulpit, right? So they, they are an amplifier to this, this process, this technique I'm talking about. They could stand up there every day or every other day, like a public you know, announcement and, and say, this is the way to behave. 
this is the way we should behave towards each other, towards the country. This is the value we have, uh, you know, by as a human, and this is the value the other humans around us have. Let's let's value ourselves and value each other, and that that would start to resonate if it was a steady drum beat. And of course, the media would have to pick it up and, I guess, agree with it or at least you know, yeah, not trash it. But you know, that's people that are scared are very easy to lead if there's a leader around and people that are not afraid and, and are, are very comfortable and everything are very difficult to lead because they don't really see the point in it. They, they, they don't have a dog in the fight. They're not, they're not disrupted. They're not, you know, concerned about anything. It's very hard to inspire somebody to go to church or to go to war or to clean up trash in a yard when their life is just humming along. Great. Mm. You know? So I think sometimes, unfortunately, societies, even the United States, have to get kind of a, a low point in appreciating all the things that I've been mentioning before they can, you know, it's almost like somebody, you know, who's got an abuse issue. You have to get to a point where you realize, okay, that's it. And then everything else has got to go the other direction. Mm -hmm. And I think as a society, that's probably where we are now. And it's not really about one, one party or the other party. It's more about just talk to each other. Yeah. Just, just yeah. have a conversation. Why do you think the, why do you think, you know, independence, you know, the, or people that say they're independent, why do you think that's, it's grown exponentially in the last 10 years? It's because most people are kind of in that middle zone. I don't want to tell you how to live your life. And I don't want you to tell me how to live my life. I want the streets to be clean. And I don't want to be robbed when I step outside. Mm -hmm. You know, I want my kids to have a good education. I, you know, we all pretty much agree on about 90% of this stuff. It's just, they're not having the conversations. Yeah. I think the thing that scares me a little bit is everything you laid out is so true. And I grew up in a really small town. So that broken window mentality, you know, that, that resonates with me because you didn't get away with anything. You know, you were down on main street, somebody knew your parents, they saw you doing something, they called home. You just, you didn't get away with it, but there has to be that underlying set of principles in order for people to speak up and do those things. Right. And that's where I worry is, there seems to be a condemnation of doing the right thing and, you know, not social type opinions on things, but truly just doing the right thing, you know, like going and smashing windows and stealing from a CVS. It's like you, you're almost by some people looked at as a bad person. If you were to try to like go intervene or say that you should stop, there's a justification that, you know, we should be doing this. And yeah. that, that concerns me because, I don't know how you can't, if you're, if you're viewed as the, the enemy for trying to keep a, a level of, of just kind of sanity, where does that go then? You know, yeah, I, I'm a believer that we have a very volatile, violent, vocal minority that gets uh, hyper amplified by some in the media mm -hmm. and by social media. But so let's let's give an example of like breaking windows and a riot or something. So riots don't start simultaneously. You don't have hundreds of people and then somebody like it's a set on a movie go and action and everybody starts breaking things. They they grow and build on themselves. So if if somebody sees somebody go to break the, the window of a storefront, and supposedly the whole point of everybody gathering together was, you know, you know, freedom or equality, or whatever breaking that storefront and going in and taking somebody's products has nothing to do with that. 
So that person could then say, this is wrong. If a police officer was allowed to come in and arrest that person and the second person and the third person, guess what? There isn't a fourth and a fifth person because people see somebody is stepping up, whether it's the, the actual paid law enforcement that's, that's there to protect property and people or citizens, and it all starts to diminish. So it's, it's that, kind of a, that kind of an explosion in violence and looting and all that, it, it feeds on itself and unless contained or controlled or stemmed early, it spreads and, and gets as bad as it gets. Hmm. And there's a lot of people that get into it because it looks cool. And yeah, it's cool as say, long as everybody goes along with it, you know? Yeah, I, was, I mean, that's that's where I'm kind of getting at, right? Is I think cooler heads can prevail to your point. Someone's truly somewhere because they're upset about equality and powder keg gets lit. Somebody starts breaking things. I can see how that can amplify and how the importance of a, a cooler head to get in the middle and say, hey, what is breaking this window going to do to solve that problem? And I think most often somebody who's truly there protesting against that cause, they will take a step back and be like, you know what? You're right. Because I care about the cause, but I see these protests. And when I see the violence and the destruction that's going on, I don't see people who are even there giving two cares to what the problem is. They're yeah. immature, young and that, and I think we've gone through these cycles. Yes, we have. And we've come out the other side. Yes, I just we have. Haven't had the, un, I guess, unfortunate, or, you know, maybe you could look at it and say fortunate uh, luck to have lived through that. And so I, I see it and I'm like, man, this, there's just a lack of people who remember what it was to be a good person to do and speak up to the things that you were mentioning. But, you know, the, again, it's personal leadership and accountability. And then it's by extension, it's feeling accountable for your brother, your sister, your neighbors, and them for you. And once that starts to happen, like the broken windows thing, suddenly you've got this cocoon of people that think the same way. And it's a very difficult cocoon to break into because it's not cool to think another way. It's not cool to be mean. It's not cool to destroy things. I mean, it's human nature, unfortunately, uh, the downside of human nature sometimes. But if you look at basic bullying, one person, you know, first day of school walks down the hallway, one person comes up to them and bullies them because of the way they look or whatever. Two days later, Two people that observe that come up and bully the same kid by the third week everybody in the school sees that person as a target for bullying now why because they're all bullies they're all they all they all started the school year as bullies look no because what they're doing is they see it people are laughing if you want to be popular you make people laugh you can be popular if you make people laugh by being a bully by belittling and demeaning somebody else until the coolest kid in the school walks up and becomes, you know, befriends the person that they're bullying. Suddenly everybody stops because they don't want to be on the wrong side of the coolest kid in the school. So, and this is a metaphor that shows up in movies all the time, but it's, it's actually human nature. It's the way humans are, unfortunately. So whether it's a Katrina and you have law abiding citizens and within three weeks, everybody's looting everything and crazy stuff's going on. And then once it's all settled down again, it stops. I it's not an inherent drive by all these people to constantly be in a state of murder, mayhem, and burning, they think it's cool or acceptable or okay for a period of time because they're allowed to think that way. Well, you're highlighting the importance for really shifting the the narrative as it pertains to media. I mean, all we do is talk about the negative side of human civilization. And I, I wonder now, as you say that, if we did try to highlight more of the good side of people and the positive of what's happening, would that be a little bit more contagious instead of turning on the nightly news and seeing, you know, Walmart's being looted and 
mass chaos in the streets, right? Well, the old, the old saying in newspaper writing, if it bleeds, it leads. So, you know, eyeballs on screens are no different than eyeballs reading newspapers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are some quote unquote riots. There are about 25 people in one, one car burning and all the cameras are focused tightly on that. Mm -hmm. They don't show all the people on the outside screaming, stop this or stopping other people or calling the police or, you know, they don't show any of the other reactions and human activity. They just focus on the thing that they know is going to cause people to share it on social media and focus on it. I mean, that's why when we see a dancing dog that sings or something, we stop and look at it because, you know, we're curious or we're, we're bored and we don't have enough, you know, content to jazz up our life. Yeah. Unfortunately, the, you know, the media in general, and I think the 24, uh, the 24 hour cycle created by cable TV in the nineties, is really what kickstarted this because now you have to fill so much time. Mm -hmm. And so you're looking for the sensational, you're looking for the things that'll draw the eyeballs to your station or to your radio or to your news newspaper, or to your social media platform. And the competition is measured in sensational. It's gotta be sensational and Unfortunately, kind of back to change the narrative and leaders can do this. I mean, you have to showcase, and it's not the norm right now, but you have to showcase the good Samaritan, the people that step up and rebuild their town, the people that defend their town, the people that, um, you know, are raising a barn for somebody that, you know, the doesn't have to be a veteran. It could be, there's a lot of good stories about that. But, you know, if you, if somebody, you know, loses, loses a husband or a, or a, uh, or a wife and there's kids involved, and the town pitches in and they, they build a house for them. That stuff's happening all the time in this country. And it never gets any, any views. It never gets any shares. It never gets any likes. And, and yet, it, it's an expression of, of human nature, just like the rest of it is. I, I, I'm an optimist. I'm always, I've always been an optimist. So like you, I've seen some cycles. And I, as a historian, I love history. And you know, we went through the anarchists back at the, the turn of the the um, 18th century into the 19th century, you know, they killed McKinley, they, they killed Archduke Ferdinand. I mean, that was a big craze. That was, that was in Europe and it was in the United States. It was destroy all government, destroy all control, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, and it eventually faded. So I, I believe in human, the human spirit. I think people are genuinely good at heart. And I think there's more of them than there are of the, of the others. I think it's a good place to leave it. Before we go, where is the best place for anyone listening that wants to check out the book to be able to go and get Be Nimble? Sure. So if you go to MartyStrongBeNimble.com, that's my author site. And all the, my articles are all there. I actually have nine novels. Um, all the proceeds from the novels are all donated to the Seal Veterans Foundation. And then I have two business books. The second one, Be Visionary, is coming out in uh, December of this year. That's all about strategy and crafting vision into strategy. So if you go to martystrongbenimble.com, you're going to find all of that and links to the Amazon point of sale for the books and no. all you need to know about me. Novels. Yeah. What's the general theme? Uh, there's a four book series, uh, the Time Warrior Sagas, which is uh, science fiction. I think it's a 20 year, 21, 23, but uh, these different guilds of... Uh, Training center, sort of, sort of speak. You'll love it. You'd love oh, it. You, you're as, as interested as I am about the you know business side because it's you know practical information that you can use in everyday life. 
I'm big on this. I don't, do you read yeah. the Jack Carr series at all? I haven't. I'm actually with my, my son-in-law is Australians visiting from Australia with my daughter and we're going through the terminal list watching the, watching it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's these warrior guilds and, and what they do is they, they train people. They go back to ancient times of warfare before gunpowder and all that. So basically mono a mono shields and spears and, and swords. And they train just like an MMA fight camp. They, um, they have all the advanced sport uh, physiology and supplements and they get, they have a, um, a port behind their ear. They can get ancient languages and tactics and a lot of other things about where they're going to go. And then they, I call it bouncing. They, they bounce back to ancient Germania or, or Gaul or Britannia and they're, and they're fighting Romans or they're fighting Celts or, and, but the, the, the warrior ethos and the SEAL teams, I started writing those books first so I could kind of express that warrior ethos, like, you know, two brothers in arms, you know, standing together, trying to survive. A lot of women warriors in there too, uh, in the four book series, I ended up naming a lot of the, a lot of the warrior women uh, after my daughters. And so they, uh, they like the series because of that, but and they're all grown. And then the, um, the other series uh, is a SEAL series it's five books the fifth book came out uh a month ago so uh and that was the, the last book in the series so i'm gonna try to figure out what i'm gonna do next on the novel side but it takes a young seal officer it's not about me but it takes a young seal officer and then kind of grows him for a couple of books as a seal eventually he's out with uh, ptsd and traumatic brain injury highly decorated navy cross winner but he's kind of a broken toy and then that the third book is all called the brotherhood. It's a story of redemption, how he kind of pulls himself up from the worst possible pit of despair and, and ends up kind of recovering who he is and everything by helping uh, another seal whose daughter is kidnapped. And then there's a, a fourth book. He's, he's out of uniform still. And then the fifth book, I just, uh, it just got released. It's called Kandahar moon. And that's basically starts with the, um, the suicide vest explosion at the uh, airport in, uh, Kabul, and he's just trying to escort a, 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 a corporate executive out of Afghanistan. And he ends up getting stuck, and then that's a, a run and gun chase thing all the way through the entire book while he's trying to survive with, with a couple of other guys that are SEALs or SF guys, former type. So that's that series. Do you, I'd have to ask on the SEAL book series, do you, because I know in listening to Jack Carr, one of the things that he was like really over the top with was the terminology, the weaponry, the things that he's like, you know, you can read a lot of really good stories and there's folks that have great imaginations and paint a good story, but it all falls apart, especially if you're a veteran, when you hear certain terms or the misuse of equipment, are you a stickler for that when you're kind of writing these or are in, you more just kind of worried about creating a story? That's in the first two books I was because they are, he's in uniform and you know, I did a lot of research because at the time I started writing those, which was about after my third sci-fi book, I'd, I'd been out of the SEAL team. So I had to go back and find out, you know, from the segueing from the first book to the second book, based on the timeframes and history, you know, what are the optics on an M4? You know, do they have hotter rounds for the M4? Are they using an H&K version of the M4 with the 7.62 round? You know, I had, to, and I had guys working for me that were, you know, SEAL snipers and guys that were in combat in those moments. And they'd help me with the research and everything. As much as I needed to, to punctuate the stories with that, once we got to the Brotherhood, he's out of uniform. And 
the reason I wrote the Brotherhood was because, you know, we were losing a lot of seals to uh, to suicide after they came back, and guys I knew, guys that I knew knew, and you know, it's a small community, so you know, I started listening about that, and I thought thinking. So this is part of the reality too. It's not just all the macho stuff. It's not all the cool guy stuff, Marvel comic books version, you know, cartoon version of what a seal is. They're flesh and blood. They get burned out. They get broken, and physically and sometimes psychologically. But I know what drives seals, and it's to be competent, to be considered an operator by their peers, and to be making a difference. So I thought, all right, I'm going to take those things, and that's going to be the redemption path. And I talked to people that had, had experienced PTSD and, and knew some guys that had struggled and eventually succumbed to, um, to their, their uh, demons. And, you know, that's, that's the book I wrote. But part of that also was there's a SEAL, uh, Craig Sawyer, that runs a, uh, an operation down on the border that, that basically chases down and recovers kidnapped kids in the, sec in the sex trafficking trade. So I called him up. And we never worked together, but we knew each other by name. And I interviewed him for a couple of hours um, over a couple of days. And I said, teach me everything you know about this thing, all the way from the corporate level of this stuff, worldwide, global, all the way down to what you're doing on the border. And I didn't put everything in the book, but man, I was just stunned. And he, he's, uh, he's been doing it for quite a long time. I, I think his, his group's credited with probably close to a thousand recovered kids by now. Um, but I was able to get enough of the mechanics of that, that when I wrote the brotherhood and I had this, this, uh, daughter of another seal who was a paraplegic, that's why he couldn't do it himself was kidnapped in Hawaii. I was able to put in the real world, you know, mm -hmm. the real world mechanisms, the, the funding, where the money flows, the, you know, how they move the bodies across to the Pacific, where, where in Asia, you know, they're, they're put. And, and so I, I baked all that in there and. I did the same kind of thing in the, in the fourth book with uh, the um, international terrorism and, and Basque terrorists and everybody kind of doing jobs for hire to raise money for their own little, their own little groups by doing hit work for other groups like Chechens doing work for somebody else so they can help the Chechen cause, et cetera. That was kind of an interesting thing. So I learned about that. And Kandahar Moon, I had to study what was the breakdown and who, who came swooping in and the, to fill the vacuum when the United States left you know, the Iranian Quds Force intelligence services, the Chinese coming in to try to grab the, the rare earth minerals, uh, a little bit of sniffing around by Russia. You had the Pakistani um, uh, intelligence service trying to reass reassert themselves. You had the Taliban governing council, council, which were kind of a hodgepodge of people that didn't like each other anyway. And then you had ISIS-K, which is Pakistani-based, and they were the ones that ended up detonating that uh, they're, they're the ones that created that uh, explosion at Kabul that caused us to leave so much earlier than we thought we were going to. And I, I had to learn all about all those guys. I mean, every time I started looking, I kept finding another, it was like a really bad cartoon with like six different bad guys, you know, I'm like, okay, but they're all doing it. They're all vying for, for uh, credibility control. They're using intimidation. They're using money. They're using all kinds of things <clears throat> in those first you know, a few weeks or a month after we, we pulled out fast. So I bake all that in. You've got a new, new reader. Yeah. It's, <laughs> you kind of got me hooked and I'm glad that you touch on the trafficking. That's one thing when I had Tim Kennedy on, it was kind of when Epstein had just, you know, 
committed suicide supposedly in, in prison. Um, but we talked and he's like, you know, there's the, the big news stories that people hear, the Epstein's, the Ghislaine's Maxwell, you know, all this stuff he goes, but what people don't talk about is the, you know, mother of four children that's down on the Mexico, Texas border, who's illegal. And she stops at the gas station to get, you know, milk for her kids, leaves the car unlocked, comes out to four kids missing and mm-hmm. never reports it because she can't. And he's like, that happens daily down on the border. Yeah. And, he goes, and that's an understatement daily. He's like, it, it doesn't get reported on. People don't talk about it, but that in and of itself fuels this trade because it's so huge. And I didn't realize sure. that it was that big. I thought, I truly believe there's a very nefarious aspect to human nature and that there are, you know, groups and organizations that are probably doing some even worse things than I could even fathom. But you you hear about it and it's more of that kind of like big time name thing. And it's just almost seems conspiracy, but it's, it's bad. If if there wasn't demand, the the fact that there's supply wouldn't matter, but there's demand and the fact that there's supply on the border. Yeah. And, and, Craig Sawyer put together a team, not necessarily of all SEALs, but he has, you know, former FBI guys. He's got guys that, that do eavesdropping, do, uh, you know, intelligence surveillance, reconnaissance, ISR type technology, all kinds of things. And they work with law enforcement and, you know, they're not like kicking doors down and shooting people. They're basically using their brain power and their experience and figuring out the networks and they've gotten really good at it. And, and unfortunately there's, 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 they're just one group and there's a lot more than they could possibly say, but yeah. So, you know, when you, when you get into these, these stories, when you're writing them, you, um, for me, it's, it's about the people in the story, it, not so much the technology and the gear, the gizmos and all that. And in writing both with, uh, with the, uh, time warrior sagas and with the, uh, the seal series, you know, I, got attracted to what's it like between the two people in the moment what's you know what's it like when two guys are are you know both been stabbed four or five times and they're they're crawling to an open spot so they can hit the device to get back to the future because they're they're messed up you know and they're talking to each other so what's that conversation look like what, what are the, what's going through their minds and you know 20 minutes ago they were studs and then the battle started now they're on the edge of death so that also conveys to the SEAL stories, that conveys to, you know, the drama of human trafficking, the drama of somebody who has PTSD or traumatic brain injury and, and how they're recovering from that drama. So there's more than enough meat for me to do that. And I'll yeah. let other people, I'll let other people, you know, focus on the areas they want to write to. Um, and I love writing. I, I, I love doing it. It's, it it kind of comes easy to me and I enjoy it. Do you have to submit your stories regardless of the content to any type of military? No, I mean, there's, there's things I can't write about specifically personal experiences that I, that I, that I, uh, I gained the experience while I was either in uniform or I was under some kind of a class, you know, I had a classified, you know, clearance or whatever, but same thing with talking on TV or things like that, or radio or on a podcast. I know what those areas and those lanes are. So I don't have to do that. You know, sci-fi, you don't have to do that. And the, the SEAL series, the first two books, it's a very early stage in a SEAL's career. It's not about a specific mission. It's not about a specific known, you know, um, actual target person or whatever. So 
The only thing you really have to worry about is uh, techniques and, and processes and procedures. You don't want to get too, too uh, clear on that, which I was able to steer clear in those first two books with the SEAL series. But I'll tell you what, it, fight choreography, which Jack Carr is really good at writing to, and, and uh, you know, because you, if you know how to do it, you know how to do it. But it's like fight choreography with guns or, you know, like gung fu with uh, John Wick or whatever. Yeah. It, it takes a lot of effort. It takes a, even more effort to write it than to do it. Because you're sitting there in your mind trying to go through a sword fight or a sword versus, you know, spear, axe, you know. And I'm trying to think, you know, I had to read up all kinds of things, you know, what hand did they carry it in? How big was the spear? Well, how did they use the spear? They didn't throw the spear. They, you know, and, and then, okay, now it's blow by blow by blow, like a fight choreography, mm -hmm. right? So if you think of a normal MMA fight in a few seconds, there might be six different blows thrown and your the, the, the fighter's feet might've moved six times. Their heads moved three times. Their torso's twisted three different angles, man. And then you got to describe all that. Yeah. Because it doesn't make sense. If, if, if I thrust with a, with a sword towards your, um, towards your shield, you block it, you block your shield. What's your counter thrust. And if I did that all day, we'd just be sitting here poking each other's shield. So I have to come up with how would a fighter in ancient times overcome that? And I, I, you know, the, um, the Vikings used to use their, their uh, axes to actually hook the top of a shield and yank it down. And then the guy behind him would shove the spear through the guy's face, wow. you know, pretty good teamwork. Right. I go, Oh, that's interesting. I would have never thought that up, but it's very difficult to write fight choreography and, uh, and make it believable. And then 10 seconds after somebody gets the book that knows anything about fighting, you, you know, like you might say, well, there's no way he could have thrown a punch with his foot in that position. Cause he'd be off balance. So you really have to think it through. You know? Yeah. Whether you're, whether you're talking about shooting or whether you're talking about fisticuffs. Well, I'm very excited to read it and, you know, to also read be nimble and I'll keep my eye open for your next book. And I hope everybody who's listening to this checks it out. It's been a pleasure. I know you're big on curiosity. The podcast is the curious Jones. That's the, the itch that I've always been trying to scratch. And I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to speak with someone like yourself, ask some of the questions that I did and, uh, hopefully, you know, as, as you continue your career, I'd love to have you back on, maybe talk about the next book and anything else you've got going on in the future, Marty. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Justin. Most definitely. Have a great night. You too. All right.